Latino political power in the United States keeps growing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. The incoming Congress is going to be historic for many reasons, in part because it will have the highest number of Latino lawmakers in Congress in US history. Here to talk about that is Christian Paz. He's a senior political reporter for Vox. Christian, thanks for joining us. First of all, how did this happen? Yeah, thank you for having me, David. Um, the way that this happened is both because of the number of historic number of vacancies of open seats that were that were open in this election cycle. Um, I think one of the findings from a lot of political scientists and political theory is that one of the best ways to increase diversity, whether it's racial diversity or gender diversity, is through having open seats, incumbents who choose not to run. And in many of those places, we had large Latino populations. That is true in Texas, that's true in California, places that sent new members and that will be increasing some of the diversity that Congress has. Um, and also in some places that weren't expected, uh, you wouldn't expect to necessarily have large Latino populations. Um, places like Oregon or Washington State where we did have some firsts being made. And where we did have some of the party, um, the Democratic Party specifically, um, backing candidates and helping them out um, in tough races. 34 incumbent Latino lawmakers and then 14 new lawmakers Latino just got elected. This means something like 11% of the US House will be Latino. What sort of impact does that have in terms of legislative priorities and the agenda? Yeah, so for this story, I talked to a handful of these freshmen of these incoming members. And each of them provided a different kind of list of priorities that they're going to bring to the House. Part of the point of having more diversity in Congress is that you have new stories and new experiences represented at the highest levels of power. And that by having people in the room who've had those diverse experiences, you're able to better advocate for and build coalitions for some of these topics. So for example, I talked to Rob Garcia from California. He is one of the new members and he's an immigrant who was born in Peru. He is one of the first immigrants that will be elected again. But also what makes him more different is that he's also gay. So he's the first gay immigrant elected to Congress. When I talked to him a little bit about some of the priorities that he's gonna have, he obviously talked a lot about immigration reform and the hopes for that aren't necessarily great because we'll have divided government. But he said that he hopes to bring some new experiences to the table and talk to folks across the aisle, Republicans about places that there can be cooperation on. He knows that it's important Impossible to make a big promise about big, um, big reforms being able to be made in the next Congress, but still, it's important to have somebody advocating and providing perhaps a different perspective on something um, like immigration reform. Um, another case uh, is if you look to um, you look to Illinois. Um, you look at Delia Ramirez. She was elected um, outside of the Chicago area, um, and she talked to me a lot about mental health. Um, this didn't make it up to the story, but it was a very poignant moment that we talked about over the phone um, was the, her own struggles with mental health growing up and how a lot of members of Congress aren't necessarily open about some of those experiences. Um, and you know that matters when you look at some of the uh, some of the legislation that might come up in the next Congress when it comes to funding for you know gun violence prevention programs and other other you know policy or uh, propositions that might um, be helpful in trying to combat some of the root causes for some of this violence. And then, of course, there might be something about affordable housing, given all the attention that Maxwell Alejandro Frost brought to it, given that he couldn't find housing. He's 25 years old, youngest member of Congress, and he was denied for his first apartment that he tried to get because, I guess, of credit rating. 
Yeah, I chatted with uh, with Maxwell too, and uh, I think we chatted before this happened, before he tweeted about this. Um, but this is also a very, you know, a very clear and uh, obvious example of something that happens to a lot of Americans, a lot of younger Americans too, um, and a kind of story that isn't necessarily told at the highest levels of power. Um, and having somebody from that younger generation, from Generation Z, um, he'll be the first uh, from that generation to join Congress. Um, you know, adds another layer to the conversation that we have about affordability, that we have about cost of living, um, and that we have about the role that government can play in trying to combat some of those, uh, some of those, you know, bread and butter issues that people were worried about going into the election, but perhaps didn't necessarily, uh, you know, feel represented in some of the political discourse that politicians have. Speaking of representation, a lot of people think, oh my God, the Latino community, they must be fairly monolithic in terms of their concerns and priorities. But as you found, it's actually a very diverse population, a very diverse set of political interests. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big themes of this election in the campaign season was whether or not Latino voters would shift to Republicans in large numbers or whether Democrats would be able to hang on to the support that they've traditionally had among Latinos. And we did see that there were places where there was you know, Republican overperformance with Latino voters, most obvious cases, Florida. But there are other states where you know, both because of strategists and campaigns deciding to dedicate more resources to turning out Latino voters, thinking specifically of Pennsylvania, for example, you did see very strong loyalty from this group of voters for Democratic candidates, specifically for John Fetterman, the Senate race, that proved incredibly important to making sure that he had that big win over Mehmet Oz. But I think what we saw really in this election is that you know, there is a lot of variance when you look at specific states and specific communities. For example, the Southwest was another great example of a place that kind of defied the expectation that Latinos would, you know, defect from Democratic candidates in big numbers. You did see Senator Cortez Masto win re-election in Nevada with a very large number of, you know, very large margin of Democratic support that she needed to beat Adam Laxalt there. And then the same was true in Arizona, where you do have a younger generation of Latinos who are, you know, mobilizing entering the electorate and need to be reached by these campaigns. And one of those campaigns obviously did it better in the Senate race. And that was you know, one of the main reasons that we had a more decisive victory there. But yeah, big trend to continue watching. And you mentioned allegiance to the Democrats, whether it's Nevada or Arizona or Pennsylvania. What was the, the most successful message? And maybe it's the Fetterman campaign, but was there one particular theme that these candidates put forward both to sort of organize Latinos and to make sure Latinos showed up and voted for Democrats? Yeah, the message really varied a lot. It depended on you know how powerful of a message or how powerful of an of an influence abortion rights messaging had, for example, in Nevada, where um, Senator Cortez Masto made a big effort to play up why she's a champion for abortion rights um, to shore up that support uh, among Latino voters who ranked it as an important concern. Um, the same is same was true in Arizona. Where there was, you know, a lot of tension over whether a decades-old law would go into effect after the overturn of Roe, and there was some legal disagreement at the state at the state level, and provided an opening for Senator Mark Kelly to be able to make that message about how he would stand in there and 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 be an advocate and stop and provide obstacles to Republicans, but. One of the other things that came up constantly in polling was that you needed to have a candidates needed to have a strong economic message, whether that's the progressive populism that some candidates like John Fetterman have advocated before, advocated for before, or whether it was you know 
talking, hearing, just listening to uh, concerns that people had about inflation. Um, that is something that came across in my conversations with some of these incoming House members too. That you know they had to make clear that they are one vote out of 500. If you look at the whole the whole of Congress, um, and it's very little that one individual person can do, but that they're required. You know, it's required to have at least uh, you know laying the groundwork for building a majority again in the future um, to be able to make those those uh, reforms or pass policies and can try to lower the cost of living. Um, and that was really important. If you weren't talking about or at least acknowledging some of the economic pain that Latino voters were feeling, um, you wouldn't get very far. The unemployment rate when Joe Biden took office was 6.6%. It's now down to 3.7%. Uh, is that one of the things that perhaps help Latinos sort of stay in the Democratic column. And maybe that's a reflection on Joe Biden's stewardship of the economy. Yeah, there's definitely a strong case that was being made when you explain some of the uh, the track record that Democrats had in the majority uh, when it came to the economy. Um, that was something that I heard a lot in Nevada that uh, you know folks could identify some things that um, the government was doing to try to improve their lives. Um, Perhaps in Nevada, you look specifically at the effect that pandemic shutdowns had within Las Vegas, specifically Clark County, where there was, um, according to some some numbers that are more you know, coming out right now, um, you know, a slight decline in Democratic support within that specific county. Republicans, I think, had in general, as was true, because it was you know a, a, was supposed to be a red wave, so Republicans did turn out. The truth was that Republicans turned out, but voted for Democrats still. Um, and the same was true for even conservative Latinos in that state. Um, and when you did talk about the difference, the, the, you know, the distinction between what the federal government can do and what the state government was able to do, um, you could make a bolder and you know, more aggressive case for voting for Democrats. You mentioned the divided government. The Republicans are going to have control of the House. A lot of these Latino lawmakers are in the Democratic minority. But is there a particular issue, a particular item that they feel optimistic? that they can get some sort of bipartisan support and even with a Republican House, get it through the House chamber. Yeah, I think it came, there's a lot of optimism on immigration and and, and still some, some sense that there are enough moderate or conventional Republicans in the House that you know would be willing to, to, to walk the talk when it comes to border security and strike a deal on, um, on some kind of protection um, for, for dreamers, for example. Um, there, there's no, uh, there's no denying that you know things will be difficult, and folks know that. Um, but they think that it's important to at least try to build those, uh, th- those connections and build those coalitions in Congress um, to perhaps take it up again when you look at the next, uh, you know, 2024, the next election. And I got to imagine that just, uh, you know, never mind the specifics of policy. I mean, in the Latino community, there must just be such an enormous sense of pride to have this level of representation in Congress. There, there definitely is, and I think this is true when you look at specific candidates um, and talk to voters in their districts, and they know that there are making these, some of these folks are making history, and there's a lot of pride for the fact that there is greater representation, and that as the community in general across the country is growing and is aging into the electorate, and is you know the largest minority voting bloc in the country, um, that there is a representation of them in federal government. Um, that is something that uh, is newer. And in a lot of places, for example, I call out Washington and Oregon because you wouldn't expect there to be just such a large community of Latinos there, but there is, and they are electing members to Congress. That is a remarkable story. Christian Paz, senior politics reporter for Vox. Christian, thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you.
Welcome back to the conversation. Reaction continues to pour in for the prisoner swap with Russia. WNBA star Brittany Griner in exchange for Victor Bout, who was a Russian arms dealer that was in US custody. Joining us to talk about all of this is David Smith. He's a Washington bureau chief for The Guardian. David, the reaction was so intense initially, but do you have a sense now a couple days later in terms of how this is cutting politically? Sure, I, I, I don't think it's going to have a very long uh, legacy. Um, Certainly not negatively for Joe Biden. I mean, you you heard some critical uh, Republican voices uh, at first, um, uh, particularly on the right. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, and so on. But the emotional power of uh, Brittany Griner being back on American soil, being reunited with her wife, and and so on, is is it's hard to argue with. And I think uh, some of Joe Biden's critics, at least, are are realizing. Um, there's not much mileage in it for them there, and so you know on balances, I think it's probably a net positive for Biden. You know, not everybody agreed with this decision. Clearly, if Victor Boot turns up involved in nefarious activities again, then that will be a whole different story, and it will be used as a cudgel against Biden. And it's certainly true that he's been given a warm welcome in Russia, and and Vladimir Putin is claiming. Some kind of victory there, but I think even that is probably overshadowed by what's happening in Ukraine and and the conflict. So I suspect Joe Biden has no regrets. Yeah, I mean the common sense reaction, in my view, is okay. This is a complex, complex situation. I mean everybody's glad that Brittany Griner is back, but of course you wouldn't want to have to give a arms dealer back to to the Russians. I wonder if Joe Biden benefited a little bit because when there was that initial reaction of oh my goodness, Joe Biden is somehow freeing terrorists. People could immediately go back and say, okay, well, what about those 5,000 Taliban that Donald Trump agreed to free in Afghanistan? That's right. Um, uh, it's very hard for, for Trump and his uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and others to, to lecture the Biden administration on uh, these sort of issues. Um, Trump took a very transactional attitude to foreign policy. Interestingly, he did bring home uh, some hostages, but uh, but yes, uh, there's the, the Taliban, I think other cases to where he was not really too bothered about the consequences. And so, yeah, it's in terms of preaching an ethical foreign policy and freeing people who should not be freed. I think Biden is not particularly vulnerable on that topic. And conversely, I was at the White House yesterday for the celebration of the of Joe Biden signing the Respect for Marriage Act. There was a mention there of, he mentioned Brittany Griner and her wife, and it got a, got a huge cheer from the crowd. So I think you know, public sentiment is quite favorable towards this, especially when we see potentially Brittany Griner returning to a basketball court. Have you picked up much chatter either at the White House or elsewhere in Washington about a Joe Biden 2024 campaign and what that would look like and which way he may be leaning at this point? Yes, I think the, the general chatter is leaning towards it happening. Uh, Biden himself, uh, when asked uh, on the record, he will say uh, he intends to run, but he's got to discuss it uh, with uh, the First Lady Jill Biden and uh, and family, probably do that uh, over Christmas. Uh, a few months ago when his poll rating was uh, extremely low and the economy was going badly and the outlook for the midterms was bleak. Uh, you certainly heard some voices in Washington muttering about 
a potential challenge or it's time for Biden to step down. I, I think the midterm elections um, actually went a, quite a long way to, to silencing that. Um, Joe Biden's Democratic Party did much better than expected. It retained the, the Senate. Um, and, and when you stop and look at his achievements over the last couple of years, they're, they're fairly considerable in a very tightly divided uh, Congress. Uh, you know, the legislation on coronavirus relief, the legislation on, on climate, uh, bipartisan gun safety, uh, infrastructure, quite a few other things. Um, some would argue the most since uh, Lyndon Johnson in the 60s. I think um, Joe Biden's other two big advantages here and the reason that a lot of people think he will run again despite turning 80 is uh, one, the, the lack of an obvious uh, heir apparent. Uh, there is certainly not a clamor in Washington for Kamala Harris to be the presidential nominee. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is probably too young, Bernie Sanders is too old, lack of other contenders. And then secondly, Donald Trump has already announced he's running again. And uh, if Trump uh, is the Republican nominee and obviously he's over that, then uh, Biden is seen probably as the, the safest uh, alternative having already beaten Trump once in 2020. The strategy with Donald Trump announcing early, the idea, as I understand it, was to try to rack up some fundraising endorsements, get his organization going and essentially have some momentum and clear the field of any Republican challengers. It doesn't really feel like that's happened at all, that Donald Trump hasn't been able to do much fundraising or bank much off of this early announcement. Where does the Trump campaign go from here? It does seem to have backfired spectacularly. It had the precise reverse effects that Trump hoped. Far from clearing the Republican field, um, you see Ron DeSantis and, and others uh, potentially running against him. Um, you don't particularly see uh, much much energy. We're not having campaign rallies. Uh, I'm sure some money is still uh, trickling in, but um, uh, not at uh, a, a huge clip uh, at the moment. Um, so I think um, Trump probably needs uh, yet another relaunch of sorts. Uh, I went to the one at Mar-a-Lago. It was quite. Uh, lethargic and uh, low energy. Um, his problem is that uh, Republicans who are willing to overlook uh, all the moral compromises and, and four years of chaos at the White House, at least some of them finally seem to be waking up to the, uh, the pragmatic electoral calculation that uh, he steered the party badly in 2018, 2020 and now 2022. And so just on a, on a ruthless level, they're just and the man who claims to be a winner turns out to be a, a loser. And so uh, we may see some of them at least uh, desert him uh, this time around. And despite all of those losses and despite dining at Mar-a-Lago with two anti-Semites and despite saying he wants to terminate the Constitution, there was a Michael Steele, a former Republican chair saying, well, show me the evidence that Donald Trump does not have his sort of grip still over the Republican party. Steele's argument is that there's a core base of Donald Trump support out there that still makes him perhaps the front runner for the GOP primaries. Do you buy it? Yes, I, I definitely understand that point, and I, I would not dare to predict uh, what's going to happen. Uh, on the one hand, he's got all the, the legal investigations. Um, he's got uh, Republicans doubting his winning ability, but uh, but on the other, you know, he's been written off a thousand times and bounced back. And certainly, I know whenever I go to a Trump campaign rally, it gives me food for thought. I see the the, the fanatical fervent uh, base, they, they arrive at seven in the morning. They'll stand there through blazing sunshine, through through rain. Um, they still love this guy. And uh, so Trump has that uh, core support uh, going into uh, 
a primary. Um, he should no, he should definitely not be written off once he starts hurling insults at DeSantis and others uh, that could uh, have have influence. And I think the broader point here is that um, uh, even if Donald Trump loses, uh, Trumpism is still um, alive and well. Um, somebody else speaking to the Lincoln Project said this primary is probably going to be a choice between uh, Trump and Diet Trump. <laughs> Even if the man himself uh, fades, I think you'll see DeSantis and others trying to copy his uh, style and substance. And what we're not seeing is a return to the Republican Party of George H.W. Bush, John McCain, John Kasich, um, or indeed Liz Cheney. In January, Washington will be returning to a divided government. Democrats in some fashion will control what happens in the US Senate. Republicans will control the House, it seems. Of course, Joe Biden in the in the White House. Uh, with this sort of uh, tightly sort of wound divided government, do you get much of a sense from, from either party about what can realistically get done over the next year? Um, I think uh, expectations should be quite uh, low. Mm. Um, Republicans did work with Joe Biden on some things for the first couple of years, but very quickly attention will turn to 2024 and they will not want to give him many wins. Republicans now control the House. We've obviously heard a lot already about how they're planning all kinds of investigations into Anthony Fauci and coronavirus, into Joe Biden's son Hunter, to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I I fear that will use up um, a lot of uh, time and, and oxygen and a lot of Joe Biden's attention will have to be on uh, judicial and administrative nominees that he can still get through the Senate as Democrats control that. And um, also maybe focusing more on, on foreign policy um, too. Uh, I think historically when you look at uh, presidencies, um, they do tend to do badly in their first midterm. And they do tend to have their, their real signature achievement uh, in their first couple of years, uh, whether it's uh, Obama with health care or Trump with uh, taxes. So even though Joe Biden um, likes to uh, work across the aisle and has had some success with that, I suspect uh, a Republican Party where Marjorie Taylor Greene is a, is a loud voice is going to make it very difficult, is going to lead to lots of uh, gridlock and frustration. And it's just going to feed that in a kind of feedback loop is going to contribute to that narrative that Washington is, you know, doesn't get much done and needs an outsider to, to blow it up again. Until about 10 years ago when I left Washington, it seemed like the city was still something of a polite town, regardless of your political nature, that after hours or at White House parties, there was still a certain collegiality among lawmakers and politicians. And then a lot of people say that changed during the Trump administration. There was a certain sort of meanness that came into Washington. Has that meanness receded a little bit or is it still a very, very partisan place? Um, it's uh, it's certainly a lot more partisan than it was 20 or 30 years ago, you hear from uh, old timers. Um, uh, and again, um, some of those extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene are, are steering that. They uh, contributed to a culture where some members of Congress feel that their safety is threatened, uh, that there could be violence. And of course, we saw the attack on uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, Paul, in, in San Francisco a few months ago. So um, yeah, I think there are moments where um, senators of both parties uh, get together and it's a, a glimpse of the old days. Uh, but, uh, but in general, um, you don't have that same culture of uh, people staying late, dining together. They tend to scurry off back to their uh, constituencies. And um, 
it's it, it's going to take another significant shift, I think, to to, to get back to the the, the golden uh, golden days of uh, bipartisanship. Well, speaking of days, we're only uh, 13 months until the first presidential primaries and caucuses in the 2024 campaign. So it's going to be an interesting ramp up to that. David Smith, Washington Bureau Chief of The Guardian. David, thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Thank you. You got it. And that'll do it for this conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Craig Lowry, Mark Kyle, and the entire team at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.